We're in this, this is our Christmas series, it's called uh, Love That Sticks. I hope you're writing your little sticky notes of encouragement all over the place. Uh, we're going to dig into Acts chapter 24. It's, it feels like Christmas to our staff right now, because we, on Friday, we all, us and a bunch of volunteers came in, and, and our offices are ready, and from the Restore Project, and so I'm the only one that's had an office throughout the whole Restore Project, uh, but everybody else has been working out of their book bags, but they were able to move all of their stuff, all of, all of our staff move all of their stuff into their offices, and so they are stoked about that, so if they look a little extra awesome today, that's why. Um, also, uh, speaking of Restore, I, I need to ask you a huge favor. Um, in the middle of January, we will open up our, uh, we have a, a, another worship space right back here in the Restore Project. This, this wall is going to go down and there's going to be a hallway right there. And just one day when you show up to church, it'll be there. It's kind of cool. Um, and, and if you look around the room, all right, it's, we're kind of full. We're, there's a lot of people here and it's a home game and we win now. So, you know, imagine what it will be like in January. So last year in January, what happened is we just, overnight in January, we grew by a thousand. And our staff was going, well, what are we going to do? And I said, oh, in my incredible leadership, I said, don't worry about it. It's like the gym. They'll all quit going to church in just a little while. But that's not true. Everybody stayed. We grew by a thousand. Everybody stayed. And in fact, we grew by another 500 over the summer. So if we grow by another thousand this January, look around, we can't fit them all in here. So I need about 200 of you on Sunday mornings at 1122 to start worshiping in the sanctuary. It'll be a live band, and a, and a screen comes down in the middle of the stage, and it'll be me, this sermon there, but I'll be six feet tall. How cool is that? I know you don't care, but it's a big day for me. First time I ever get to be six feet tall. I might go watch me in there, okay? That's how cool it's going to be. So, especially if you have kids in new gen, it'll be super easy for you to drop your kids off, get them all checked into their space, and walk right into the sanctuary. It seats about 500 people. It looks just like this, just not quite as large. And we need to make more, we need to make room in January for all the people that Christ is going to draw unto himself, and we need to save them seats in here so that about two, three hundred of you will be able to move over there. So start praying about it. You don't have to make a decision soon. If the Lord doesn't tell you to move over, sometimes he tells me to tell you what to do. And so uh, if enough of you don't move over, then I'll tell you who God told to move over. All right? Is that good? Welcome to church. Hopefully you found Acts 24 by now. Let's dig in. We're in week three of this series, and this is our Christmas series. You'll remember for like the past two or three months as we've been in the book of Acts, Paul, the apostle Paul, he's been in and out of jail. You know, he gets in jail, gets out of jail, back to jail, a lot of jail. Well, in the past three weeks, um, not only has he been arrested, he got arrested in chapter 21, but now he's being transferred, he's on his way to Rome, and today we're going to see him give his defense before the governor, Felix. And you'll remember uh, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Ryan led us through the, the first week of this series, Love That Sticks, and that love is an action the love isn't love until it costs you something. And about 40 men had, had uh, conspired to, and covenanted to kill Paul. They were going to kill Paul. And so Paul's nephew hears about this plan to kill his uncle and, and puts his neck on the line. And he goes to the Roman officials and he warns them that there was a group of men plotting to kill Paul. And you see, love isn't love until it costs you something because the, the Roman officials could have just killed the nephew and said, you know, get out of our face. But they don't. They... they we find out last week that, that the pain that Paul was in was actually God's provision. So last week we talked about pain and the purpose of pain. And when you can't understand the purpose of your pain, then you've got to trust the providence of God. That regardless of the situation that you're in, that, that God is able to work in all situations for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And then today, 
Paul finally makes it to the, to the uh, official, to the governor, and he's going to give his defense for what he was arrested for. So that's what we're going to talk about in Acts chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. It says, And after five days, the high priest Ananias, and you'll remember a few weeks ago, this is the guy that had Paul punched in the face. Remember that? Paul says, I have lived with a good conscience before God all the days of my life. And Ananias says, punch him in the face. And so you think your Christmas guest list is rough. Check out Paul's. This guy, you know, guy that punched him in the mouth three weeks ago is now here. So after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. And they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, now he's going to say this to the governor. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and in everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. So in the Greek, Tertullus is uh, kiss up. I think that's what it means, because that's what he's doing. He's just buttering the guy up because he's about to make his case against Paul, so he's telling him, How awesome he is. Verse 5. For we have found this man a plague. Talking about Paul. He's a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Probably the reason Paul is accused of profaning the temple is because they keep seeing Paul, a Jew, run around with with unclean Gentiles because he's leading all these Gentiles to Christ. And so since Paul still worships in the temple, they're just assuming that he's taking the unclean Gentiles into the temple. Verse 8. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Verse 9. And the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So just a newsflash if you're a Christian. The the closer you cling to the gospel, the less this world is going to accept you. So just be reminded of that. I don't know why, as Christians, we wonder why uh, we get attacked when Jesus said things like, do not be surprised when this world hates you, because they hated me. And so the more you're like Jesus, then the less acceptable you become to this world. And what's happening to Paul here is Paul is becoming more and more and more like Jesus. And Jesus said, but take heart when you face troubles of of many kinds. So you're going to face troubles. And take heart when this world hates you, for I have overcome the world. So some of you, your Christmas break is going to be a time of trial. Because from last Christmas to this Christmas, your entire eternity has changed directions. And now you're going to be face-to-face with some members of your family, and they don't get this whole Jesus thing. And I understand. And then, in essence, they're not going to get you either. And so just know that some of you are walking into those painful times. And so don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if some of you even get attacked because of your new faith in Jesus Christ. But Jesus said, for I have overcome the world. So the the more you follow Jesus, the less this world is going to like you. Verse 10, Paul is going to get his turn to rebut the accusations made against him. Verse 10, and when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. And neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. So, first of all, Paul is very respectful 
in the way he talks to the governor. He's like, hey, thanks for your time. And here are the accusations against me. And here, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. Okay, there's no, I haven't done any of those things that they have accused me of. And then, quite honestly, if Paul could just keep his mouth shut, he probably wouldn't get in trouble. If he would just stick to the court case itself, and if he would just rebut the accusations against him, he'd be okay. But Paul can't shut up. Because Paul is less concerned about defending his freedom, and he's more concerned about the proclamation of the gospel. And so what Paul's going to do, I mean, he addresses the accusations, but then he goes quickly to the gospel. And here's the thing about the gospel. The gospel is offensive. But Paul's not offensive. And listen to me if you're a Christian. There's a difference there. The gospel rightly proclaimed will rightly offend. But many times people can't hear the gospel because they're offended by some goofy Christians. And, and we should not be offensive, but let the message of the gospel be offensive. Now, is it offensive? Yes. It starts out with, you are a wretched, black-hearted sinner. I mean, I do entire sermons about how you and I deserve hell. And if you don't surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you've earned the full wrath of an almighty God. I, I still perplex why you keep showing up to hear the same message, but, but people do. So is it offensive? Oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's embarrassingly offensive. But we should not be the offensive ones. Because sometimes what people do is some goofy Christians, they offend. They say, you're going to hell and I'm not. And, and I just wanted you to know that I know that I'll be in heaven and you won't be with me. That is not the gospel. That's just kind of some goofy Christians. And so Paul is respectful. And he allows the message of the gospel to stand on its own. And so he, what he's going to do... Let me check this out. Verse 14. But this I confess to you. All right, so I've rebutted the accusations that they have against me. But since we're all here and I've got an audience, I might as well share what I really believe about this. But this I confess to you, <clears throat> that according to the way. So in your Bible, underline the words, the way. So in the first century, Christians weren't even called Christians. All right? uh, Christians called themselves people of the way. Uh, Christian, the word Christian is only in the Bible, only in the New Testament, just a few times, and it's usually outsider's name for people that follow Jesus. And, and it was, um, and it wasn't even really a compliment. It was, it was people saying, "Hey, this group of people, the way they act, and the way they love, and the way they demonstrate love and care for others, they remind me of that Christ guy." So this group of people are like little Christ or Christians, but but actual disciples, they called themselves people of the way. And the reason they call themselves that is because they're quoting Jesus. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, that's the offensive part. If Jesus would have just stuck to the stories and moral lessons and all that, we're fine. But this is the offensive part. That Jesus himself claims that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, you mean no one? Yeah, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, is that offensive? Yes. Yes. It's embarrassingly offensive. In fact, I mean, if I could be honest, let's just pretend like we're not at church, all right? We could just all chat and be honest. People ask me all the time, so you're saying that your Jesus, Jesus is the only way, and everybody else is damned, but the Jesus people are okay. I'm like, look, I didn't make it up. I'm just quoting the guy. Here's what he said. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. It's embarrassingly narrow. It's embarrassingly offensive. I mean, there's a part of me that wants to go, well, God, why didn't you just say, 
Um, all right. So everybody that's kind of in favor of God, it's an all skate. All right. Everybody to the dance floor, regardless of what you believe or what you've done or who you are, or where you're from. Really doesn't matter. You know, adult swims over everybody in the pool. As long as you've got some kind of positive interaction with the man upstairs and the force be with you. And let's all get in together. That, that seems that seems like it would be better. The problem is Jesus said this about himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, from our perspective, it can seem very narrow and very offensive, but people ask me, so is that true? So what about, everybody's got a what about, what about this person? Well, Jesus even gave commentary unto his own offensive statement. Not only did he say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and he also says, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So when people go, yeah, but what about, you go, if they fall into no one category, then, then they got to have the way, the truth, and the life, and it's Jesus. And every other world religion started this way, that some person showed up and said, hey, I'm from God. And all his friends were like, no way, dude, we were college freshmen together, you can't be from God. No, seriously, I'm a prophet. And here's the way to get to God. If you align your shraka, if you pray these prayers, if you obey these commandments and do these things and don't do these things, or if you become one with the name, whatever, if you do these things, this is a way to get to God. And then Jesus comes along, and he does it totally different, and he goes, no, 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 I'm not going to show you a way, but I am the way. Like, to know him is to know me. To get to him, you go through me. And so that's what Paul is saying when he's saying, I am a member of the way. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law written in the prophets. So are you saying that Jesus is the only way to God? Yes, if everything he said was true. Because at first, at first glance, it looks a little crazy. But if you think about it, if the claims of Christ are true, and obviously I believe they are, and he is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. If he is the creator that created all things. If he is the author of life and the creator of every living being. If he is the one that spoke the stars into existence and by his power holds our cosmos in, in existence right now. If he is all of those things, then he would be the only one that could offer eternal life. He would be the only one that could, could offer unto you life after this death. And so, yeah, if he is who he says he is, then he is the only one, the author of life that could offer you eternal life. Not just in the sweet by and by when you die, but even right now in this place this morning. And so then what Paul would say is, because he's talking to a bunch of Jewish uh, religious leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees. And he's saying, so let's just get this straight now. Um, And this Jesus who claims to be the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So... Uh, I believe in the same God that these guys say they believe in. And in fact, we read the same book. The only thing is they miss the point of the whole book. And so what Paul does now is Paul is going to, when it says, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, he's talking about the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And he's saying everything written in the law and the prophets, everything from Genesis to Malachi was pointing to one thing. And the one thing that it was pointing to is that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one would come to the Father except through him. And so over and over and over, Paul would teach through the whole Bible. 
And so just so you don't get lost, because Bible nerds, you're going to love this. Get your pens. Uh, the rest of you are going to, in a minute, go, where? What is he talking about? All right? So we're going to walk through the entire Bible in about eight minutes. All right? And so probably Paul would take people to back to the book of Genesis and say, hey, look, it all started in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. And, and God said, let us make man. Who's us? What are they doing there? All right? It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he creates man in his own image. And, and they're in perfect communion together. That God is with his people and they'd walk around in the garden together in it's perfect, um, unfiltered relationship. And he only gave people two commandments. People usually say he gave one commandment, but he actually gave two. He, he said, stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so don't eat of that tree. We've heard about that before. But you know what? The other commandment that he gave to the man, be fruitful and multiply. That's my favorite commandment. Praise God. Adam woke up every morning and said, come on, baby. I'm just trying to please the Lord. I mean, I'm just an obedient follower of God. All right, so you, we serve a good God. Are you kidding me? Good gracious. All right, so that was the commandment. <clears throat> and then, and then the end enters evil. Satan uh, tempts the man and the woman. The man was right there too. And they both, they decide that they would make better gods than, than the one true God. And so they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in that moment, they recognize that they are naked and they are ashamed. And so shame enters our world for the very first time. And because God is holy and just, <clears throat> he's not going to leave sin un punished and so he walks through the garden of eden and he calls out to the man and the woman not because he didn't know where they are but because he has been in constant pursuit of his lost children from the very beginning of human history and adam and eve have sown for themselves fig leaves because it is in our own nature that when we sin against god we try to cover up our own sin but it's always insufficient and so god judges the the man and the woman and the serpent and to the woman he says this in his judgment against her, he says that, that you will bear a child or you will have an offspring. And your offspring, the enemy will bruise his heel, but he will crush his head. And theologians call that the pro angelion. It means the first gospel. What God says from the very beginning, from, from the Garden of Eden, is that, that Eve, from your lineage will come a son, and that son... The enemy will come against him, and the enemy will bruise his heel, but that son will crush the enemy's head. And I don't know if you watch a lot of UFC, but at the end of the match, if one guy's got a bruised heel and one guy's got a crushed head, the crushed head guy loses. Okay, you can jot that down every single time. And it's a foreshadowing of the gospel where God says, this is a broken world, but there will come a day where I do something about it, about it to redeem this world. And then, in God's justice... He banishes Adam and Eve from the garden, from his presence. But he doesn't just send them out on their own. He makes for them a covering of fur. So for the first time in history, death happens. And an animal's blood is shed to make a covering of fur for the man and the woman. And it's the very beginning of the gospel that blood would be shed for the covering of sin. And so then from Adam and Eve, maybe he, he hopped over to Abraham. You know, Abraham had many sons. Many sons had father Abraham. Well, before he was Abraham, he was just Abram. And he, was, he wasn't even a religious guy. He was just kind of a regular guy. Out of God's goodness and grace, he just picked out Abram. And he was living in the Ur of the Chaldees. And he goes to Abram. He says, hey, Abram, I want you to pack up you and your wife and everything that you have. And you're going to move to the promised land. And Abram goes, where's the promised land? He goes, I'll tell you when you get there. All right? And so check this out, husbands. I mean, you want to see faith? Abram goes to his wife and says, baby, the Lord told us to pack up everything we had. She said, who's the Lord? They didn't even know who he was yet. 
And he's like, well, I don't know. I'll tell you later. But get everything, put it in the station wagon. We are going to the promised land. Where's that? He said he'd tell us on the way. And you know what, fellas? She went. Ah, it was a miracle from the beginning. And so that's why, <laughs> that's why Abraham had faith and it was accredited to him as righteousness. And then the Bible says that, that Abram becomes Abraham and Abraham was a friend of God. And God promises Abraham that you are going to be the father of many nations. And Abraham's, Abraham's thinking, but God, I don't even have one kid yet. It's going to be hard to get to nations. I've got to start with at least one kid. And he was already old. He's like 80 when he gets the promise. And then what he says about his wife is, he says, look, God, I'm old, but my wife literally in the Hebrew is older than old. Don't ever say that, fellas. All right? but that's what Abraham said just in his quiet time. <clears throat> and so, but sure enough, uh, they have a, a son, a miraculous son. And his name's Isaac. Then God comes to Abraham and he says, I want you to take your son. Your, the Hebrew says, your only begotten son, Isaac, whom you love. I want you to take him up on the hill and I want you to sacrifice him to me. And Abraham's thinking, my one promise, my one son. I mean, the thing that I love on this earth more than anything else. And God wants to test him to see if he loves God more. And so he takes his son, Isaac, up on the hill. And Isaac's not a little, tiny little kid. Isaac can talk and think. And Isaac says, hey, Dad, I, I got some questions here. Um, I see the fire and I see the wood for the altar. But where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, well, God will provide. And they get up on top of the mountain, and they're gonna, he's going to sacrifice his son Isaac because that's what God told him to do. And so he places his son on the altar and raises the knife. Look, you think you have daddy issues that need counseling. Look, Isaac's reading Dr. Phil books the rest of his life, okay? And then the angel of the Lord shines up, uh, shows up in a bright light and says, stop, stop, stop. For in the thicket there is a ram that can be the substitute. And so... He unties his son Isaac, and they go and get this ram whose horns have been caught up in the thicket. Look, I've been hunting a long time. I've never come across a buck with his horns all hung up in some briars, okay? It's a miracle, another miracle. And what it's to, it's to show is to show God's people that there could be a substitute, that God was going to send a substitute. And so he takes that ram, and he sacrifices it on the altar. And so maybe... Uh, maybe Paul took them through that part of the Scriptures. And then he probably took them to the part where... where <clears throat> the, the God's chosen people, the Hebrew people are slaves in Egypt. And so God raises up Moses to be this deliverer. And Moses goes to the Pharaoh. And time after time after time, Moses says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, no way, man. It's like my entire labor force. I can't let them all go. And so God starts bringing down plague after plague after plague after plague against Pharaoh. And you got to read your Bible, people. There's some cool stuff in Exodus. Um, the, a bunch of gnats show up one time. The entire, the entire country gets full of bullfrogs at one point. The uh, river turns to blood. I mean, you think Walking Dead's cool. you got to read your Bible, all right? It's better. It's all, and it happened. And then on the last plague, the tenth plague, <clears throat> after Moses goes in and says, let my people go, then God comes to Moses and said, okay, this is the tenth and final plague, and the angel of death is going to pass over Egypt. And the angel of death is going to kill the firstborn of everything that's alive, except for those that go out and spill the blood or sacrifice the perfect spotless lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost of their homes. And on that night, when the angel of death comes through, whoever's home has the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their home, that angel of death will pass over that home. And so the next morning, all the dads got up and got their, their oldest and said, hey, look, we've got to go sacrifice a lamb. And all the oldest kids were saying, well, what did the lamb do? And the dad said, look, God said it's either you or the lamb. And they said, that one. That was a perfect one right there. I like that one. Let's get that one. So they got it. 
sacrificed it, put the blood of the lamb on the door, and the angel of death passed over Egypt. And all the firstborn died except for those that had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their homes. And so then the nation of Israel comes out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. We've all seen that movie. And then they get into the wilderness. And then Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he receives the Ten Commandments from God. And so the point of the commandments was not so that you could be better than everybody else, but the point of the commandments were actually so that you could realize that you can't keep the commandments. Because let's just be honest, evangelicals love to fight about hanging the commandments in schools and, and courtrooms, but you don't even know where they are. There's like four people in the whole room that can look them up right now. It's Exodus chapter 20, all right? And if I ask you to name them all, you can't name them all, all right? One day I'll teach you where they all are. But by the time Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, they've already broken the first one because they're worshiping an idol. And so the, the commandments were actually just evidence to the people that no matter how hard you try, that you can't keep the commandments, you can't be righteous, that none of us are righteous, not even one. That we're all sinners. That we're all wretched, black-hearted sinners. And, 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 and the heart of the problem is a problem of our heart. That no matter how hard you try, man, you try, try, try. But as soon as HGTV comes on, you start coveting, and you didn't even mean to. And you're breaking the commandments. Which is why when you get the book of Leviticus, which I know you guys all read over the Christmas season, right? To stir your hearts towards the Lord. But you get to the book of Leviticus, and then what happens is God sets up a sacrificial system of atonement. So that one time a year, on the day of atonement, Because God's people cannot keep the commandments and blood has to be shed for the forgiveness of sin or the covering of sin, then the the high priest would stand before the people and all the people would gather. And the high priest would have two animals for sacrifice. Either be two goats or two lambs or sometimes a goat and a lamb. And as the people would gather, they would confess their sin to the high priest out loud. So imagine that. You'd have to look around a little bit before you just start confessing, right? Make sure you're not by your neighbor. Hey, forgive me for stealing my neighbor's lamb. They'd be like, what? All right, so you've got to be careful with that. If you're Catholic, that's why you get in a little room by yourself so nobody can hear you, all right? So, so they would confess their sin, and then the high priest would take the sin of the people and transfer it to the head of this goat. And this was important. We serve a tactile God. God was teaching the people that there could be a transfer for the penalty of sin. And he would take the, the, the confessed sin of the people and transfer it to the head of this goat. And then he would take the goat out to the edge of town and send it out into the desert to just go die. And the people would see this goat with their sin on its head going in the other direction. And the high priest would say something like, may this goat take the sin of our people as far as the east is from the west. And that goat was called a scapegoat. And then the other one, the lamb, he would take it into the temple and he would slaughter the lamb sacrifice the lamb. And then the high priest would go into the temple or the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was the place where people, everybody showed up to worship God. And they had this one big room where everybody would come in and worship. And they had a smaller room. It was just for the, like the clean, religiously clean guys. And then, then inside it, it had this little tiny room called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies represented the very presence of God among the people. And so um, you, could, you couldn't go in the Holy of Holies because the, the perfect presence of God would strike you down. Except for one time a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement, after he cast that goat out as far as the east is from the west, and he sacrificed this, this other lamb, he would go into the Holy of Holies, 
And he would have to go by this big curtain that separated um, God's presence from God's people. And inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Have you ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? That's what, you can learn more about it there. And inside of the Ark where it was the covenant or the commandments of God. And they were placed inside of the Ark. And everybody knew that they'd broken all the commandments all year. And so they would, first of all, the, the priest would consecrate himself to make sure he was in right standing before God. And then he would go into God's presence in the Holy of Holies with this lamb. And if he messed it up, if in any way he defamed the name of the Lord, then he would drop dead right there. That God's judgment would be upon him because God is that holy and that righteous and he would drop dead in that minute. And so, you know, what they would do to make sure that they knew he was still okay is they would tie a bell to the high priest so you could hear him, you know, dingling around in there and they would tie a rope to him and if you didn't hear the bell, then the JV priest became the high priest right there on the spot. And you'd pull the dead guy out and then you got promoted. Congratulations, look, mom, I'm the high priest. And then, boom, you're in to finish the drill on the Day of Atonement. And then they would take the blood of the lamb and sprinkle it over the Ark of the Covenant. And the blood of the lamb would cover the broken commandments for a year. And they had to do it every year after year after year after year after year. And that animal sacrifice was never enough to fully and finally satisfy God's judgment. And so maybe that's where Paul took them um, to, the, to the Day of Atonement. And then maybe Paul took them to the prophets. Because prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, they would show up generation after generation and they would point to one thing. That one day there is one coming who is the Christ, who is the Messiah, who is the spotless Lamb of God to come and take away our sins. And so you'll actually hear a lot of prophecy around this time of year from prophets like the prophet Isaiah. Who says things like, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Or in Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That not only is the son this miraculous event where a virgin has a baby, but the baby's not a regular baby. The baby is Mighty God. The baby is Emmanuel, God with us. And then, you know, Christmas happens, and we'll come back to that in just a second. But then, um, Jesus' first cousin, well, it, it, let's, let's go back to the prophets. So you got Isaiah, and then you got all these minor prophets, and then finally you get to Malachi, it's the last book of your Old Testament. And Malachi says things like, when the Son of Righteousness comes, there will be healing in his wings. And then you turn the page in your Old Testament, Malachi, and you get a blank page. That blank page is 400 years of nothing. Nobody speaks. Nothing that we know of really happens. And then you turn the page and you're in Matthew chapter 1. And then you go Mark. And then you go Luke. That's where the Christmas story is. The one that we all know is in Luke. And then you go John. And what you, what you hear about in these different chapters, especially John, is you hear about John the Baptist. And that's not the guy, John, that wrote it. That's a different guy. It's the first cousin of Jesus. And his, and his nickname is the Baptist, John the Baptist. Now, it's not like Paul the Presbyterian and Mark the Methodist and John the Baptist. That's what I thought growing up. But it's just because he baptized people. And and he would, he would stand out in the Jordan River and he would scream at everybody. He only had one message, repent and be baptized. Repent and be saved. That's all he preached. But he would scream at people and people must like that. So they would all show up, thousands of people and all these people were getting baptized. And then one day, one day out of nowhere, John the Baptist says, behold, which means like, all right, everybody, turn off your iPods, pay attention. What I'm about to say next is the most important thing in my whole sermon. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the entire world. 
And he's pointing, and it's his first cousin, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus makes his way down to the water. And he says, the Lamb of God, not another Lamb of God that's a substitutionary atonement for one year, but the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of all the world. And see, what Paul's doing is Paul would take everything that happened in the Old Testament to point to that one moment in time that there he is, the Messiah, the Christ, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin, not cover over the sin for one more year, but to take away the sin of who? All people. Any, if you're in the all people category, then he came to take away your sin. And then he baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River. And when he brings him up out of the water, the heavens open up. And a voice, God the Father, speaks from heaven and says, Behold my son in whom I am well pleased. And then for the next three years, Jesus goes through his public ministry. And he tells stories. And he does parables. <clears throat> and he does miracles. And he heals people. And he feeds people. And he walks on water. And he does all this cool stuff. And there was lots of reasons. One, he wanted us to know God, not just as sovereign Lord, but as heavenly Father. That's what the, the point of most of his parables are about, that you can know God, have a relationship with God as heavenly Father. But ultimately, Jesus did not come as a good example or a, or a rabbi or a teacher, but he came as the Lamb of God to shed his blood, to take away our sin. So when the angel of death were to look at you, he would pass over because the blood of the spotless Lamb was on the doorpost of your heart. And so... Jesus claims to be God. He says ridiculous things like John 14, 6. I am the way, the life, and the truth. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And so when you say that kind of stuff in the first century, they kill you. They crucify you. And so they took him. They nail him to a cross. He says seven things on the cross. The first thing he says is this. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then the last thing that he says is this. It is finished. What is finished? Everything that Paul was pointing these guys back to that sacrificial system of substitutionary atonement is finished. Why? Because we don't need another Lamb of God because the Lamb of God has come to take away the sin of all mankind. And then they took Jesus who died on that cross and they buried him dead in a tomb. And then three days later, by the power of God, he was resurrected from the grave. And this is what Paul can't shut up about. Because what happens at the cross is the forgiveness of sin. That Christ pays the debt on our behalf. He pays for our sins so that you and I can be forgiven and our sins can be washed away. But what happens at the resurrection is that it makes it possible for us not to just be forgiven, but, for, but to be adopted into the family of God. Because the cross pays for our sin, but at the resurrection, Christ conquers sin and death. And because Christ is alive, then you and I can be co-heirs with our brother Christ to all that is the Father's. So it would be like this. Um, so if, if you go to court, and I know for our church, that's not a hypothetical, so remember last time you were there. Uh, if you go to court, it's one thing for the judge to say, not guilty, I forgive you. But then it's an altogether another thing for the judge to go, and now you are being adopted by me. You're going to come home with me, and I'm going to care for you and love you and discipline you to maturity. So that's what the cross and the resurrection does. And then Christ ascends into heaven. And then we, we look forward to the day that he returns. And we can trust that he will return. Because he came back from the grave in the first place. And so there's the Bible in like 10 minutes. And that's what Paul would do. See Paul with the folks. He would walk people through the Old Testament. And he would say the whole thing is about one thing. It's not about David and Goliath and. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and it's not about that. It's about all pointing to this one fact. 
that Jesus is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of all mankind. And therefore, Jesus can say things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Why? Because God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, that we would be made his righteousness. And so, Paul, in his defense, doesn't even try to defend his freedom, but he just goes through the gospel. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Verse 15, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and unjust. So, I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now, now Paul's going to go back to current events. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say that wrongdoing they find when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, now now here's, again, if Paul could just keep his mouth shut, he probably gets out. But he can't quit talking about what he's seen and heard. And so here's what Paul says. Paul says, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. And that's why he keeps getting in trouble. Because he won't quit with this Jesus is the way and his resurrected stuff. Now, if you're Paul's counselor, here's what you do, all right? You would say, um, you'd say to the judge, could, could we just have a brief recess because I need to uh, have a little time with my client here. And you would pull Paul aside and say, Paul, can you just shut up about the way, the truth, and the life stuff? Can you just leave the resurrection alone? Because if you'll just stick to, to the good moral teacher aspects of Jesus, everybody's okay with you, all right? nobody's offended when you talk about the stories that Jesus told. I mean, tell that one again about the dad and the kid, and the kid runs off and squanders away everything, and then he comes back and the dad throws him a party. Everybody loves party Jesus, right? Or tell that one about the miracles. I mean, just take a poll and say, how many of you here know someone that was healed by Jesus? And somebody's going to be like, yeah, my cousin was blind. He rubbed spit mud in his eyes, and now he can see. I mean, you're going to be popular if you'll just hang on to that part of his life. Nobody's offended by the teachings of Jesus, by the miracles of Jesus. Ask how many people were there when, they, when, when you were fed by the fishes and the loaves. And, and then, you know, you can gain a little credibility, have some, have some character witnesses there, and we can get out of this. But you know what? Paul keeps just talking about the resurrection over and over and over and over. And here's what it reminds me of. It kind of reminds me of what happens at Christmas. You see, there's not a lot of folks that are offended by the baby in the manger. In fact, our, our culture loves baby Jesus. Nobody's offended by baby Jesus. And if you're not careful, if you don't pay attention, you, in just a blink of an eye, can have a Talladega night, Ricky Bobby kind of faith. I mean, you just never get past eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus. With his golden swaddling clothes and his chubby hands and can't even say a word yet, but somehow still omnipotent baby Jesus. But, but the point is that, I put it in your notes this way, the point, here's the point. That Jesus came not just to be celebrated as a baby in a manger, but to be the Savior through his life, death, and resurrection. And so Jesus was not meant to stay in the manger, but it was just a, that cradle was just a precursor to the cross 
that he was going to the cross and there was going to be an empty tomb. And there's more to the story than just the Christmas Jesus. It would be like this. And let me just, before I get on Christmas too much, let me tell you, I am not the anti-Christmas guy. All right? I love Christmas. Rudolph and we gathered together as a family and watched Home Alone the other night, okay? Love it. We decorate our outside of our house and inside of our house, and we buy presents. And if I had more money, I'd get more presents, all right? I love it. You get me a present. I'll take your present. I love Christmas. And, and we, we, going, you know, we got rained out on Santa yesterday, but we're going back, and we're going to take pictures with Santa and, and Santa. And, don't, and let me tell you this, too. Don't send me the email about the winter solstice and the pagan Christmas tree, all right? I ain't nobody got time for that. You just don't have friends to get you Christmas presents, so you're going to have to make it the reason be pagan. I'm kind of into God taking pagan things and making them Christian. You know why? That's what he did to me. So Santa Claus comes down my chimney and praises Jesus in my house. That's how we do it, all right? So I'm pro-Christmas. I love it. Love it all. But the danger is, the danger is that, that, that we think that just Jesus never graduates from the baby in the manger. And again, the baby in the manger is not offensive to anyone, but the baby in the manger grew up to be a man who claimed to be God. And died on a cross, shed his blood. And then all of these witnesses claimed that he resurrected from the dead and walked, and, and walked among them and appeared to over 400 people for over 40 days in the town that he was crucified in. And he is my Lord and he is my Savior. He's not just a baby in a manger. And so we should get excited during this time of year, but you have to understand that, that Christmas, this isn't even the point. The point of Christmas isn't even the baby in the manger. Yes, we celebrate the incarnation of Almighty God who dressed himself in human form and came to be our Savior. But it's just like the pregame. It would be like going to your college's football game, right? And you show up and you're all decked out in your stuff. Obviously, I'd be in red and black, right? All decked out, got a whole family in red and black, sitting amongst our friends and family in red and black. If you got somebody with the wrong color on, we go, go get on your side. What's wrong with you, okay? And, and there you are. And then the team comes running in the tunnel, and you cheer, and there's a lot of pomp and circumstance, right? You play your fight song, you do your move. Everybody's got to move for their team, whatever it is. And you do it, and you sing your song. And then if you were to tell your family, all right, come on, let's go. They're like, whoa, 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 where are you going? The game hasn't even started yet. I know, but they're here. I love the way they run in, and I love the song, and I run, love the way they run through the tunnel, but we can go now. You go, no, idiot, you got to stay to watch us beat the bad guys. A lot of times, that's how Christmas, Christians can treat Christmas. This is just the pregame. you got to keep going to the cross and the resurrection to see your team win and beat the bad guys. And so it's just the pregame. So yes, we celebrate the incarnation, but you don't stop there. And it wasn't even the point. If you look at the proclamation from the angels in Luke chapter 2, on what we would know as the Christmas story, here's what the angels say. The angel says, verse 10 of Luke chapter 2, and the angels said to them, fear not. See, the angels appear to the shepherds. And I've, I've never shepherded, but I've camped. And so if me and my buddies are camping in this one night, the heavens crack open and a bright light shines down and whoa, people start talking. You're going to have to start out with, hey, whoa, fear not, all right, because there's going to be some fear. And, and I don't know if you've studied angels much in the scriptures, but every time an angel shows up, they always start with fear not or don't be afraid, which leads me to believe they are not just skinny chicks in their underwear with some big wings, all right? They're like ferocious messengers from the Lord. <clears throat> And so they show up and say, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. That's gospel. I bring you the good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
Do you realize that if you fall in the all the people category that Jesus came for you? Yeah, but I grew up in a different tradition, a different religious tradition. That's fine. Jesus came for you. Whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you're really good at being good, or you're always on Santa's naughty list, then, then the angel said there's good news of great joy for all the people. That's why we're a church for all people. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. That the baby in a manger grows up not to just be a teacher, not to just be a good example of how we should treat one another, not just another religious figure, but the baby in the manger grows up to be a Savior. And it's to remind us that you and I are not, are not mistakers in need of a, of a life coach. We're not mistakers in need of better teaching. We're not mistakers in need of a better example. But we're sinners in need of a Savior. And so the angel says it. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so the cradle is just a precursor to the cross and to the empty tomb. And if you're not careful at Christmas... You can just kind of accept baby Jesus and honor baby Jesus. That's just the pregame. The point is that he came to be a savior through his life, death, and resurrection. And here's what it reminds me of. Here's what can happen, especially in our southern culture. Here's what can happen. That we can treat Christmas kind of like a buffet. That we just go through the buffet and be like, well, I'll take some presents and I'll take some baby Jesus and I'll take some Santa Claus and I'll take some of the movies and I'll take all of this. But the thing is, is that Christ is unique in all of this. See, last week, our staff went on staff retreat. We went to Fripp Island in South Carolina and it is a winter wonderland. All right. It was awesome. We get up there and it's cold, which it needs to be cold in December. And so we get there and, and first of all, there are deer everywhere. Like you could pet them. All right. I... There's all these signs, don't feed the deer. And so I see some deer, and so I get some food. I go up to them. That's why we need a savior, because we're breaking the rules, right? And there's two, Jerry Mullis, there's two eight-point bucks just eating out of my hands. It was amazing, all right? The Lord was there. And then people were like, oh, you're still going to kill them? Yes. <laughs> Not those two. They were cool, but the rest of them are in trouble. So it was awesome. But I was a day late, and the reason I was a day late was because JP had a Christmas play. And, and I, you know... There's a lot of things I miss out on at church, and, and, and I'll take a smaller church for kids that love Jesus and love the church. That's my goal, right? Have kids that love Jesus and love the church. And so I, I didn't want to miss the staff retreat, but it had to be a little bit late because he was, he was Joseph in the Christmas play. But at their Christmas play, he goes to public school, and so at their Christmas play, it's not the Christmas play, right? It's the holiday extravaganza or something like that, and, uh, which is funny. But, and it's called December in Our Town. And the whole thing is about all the different traditions that people celebrate all the traditions that people celebrate in December. And, and again, when I was a kid, it was a Christmas play, but now it's the holiday pageant or whatever. And, and, I, and I'm not trying to bust on the teachers, okay, or the school. I mean, in fact, my heart goes out, and I really pray for, and I hope to equip and encourage all the teachers that teach in public school that have to demonstrate and proclaim the gospel under the authority of the school system that you work in. So I praise God for the school he goes to and the teachers. I'm glad they even just had the Christmas thing, all right? But the, but, the, but the pageant, and there's a lot changed there too. Like one thing that I've found out is that in JP's class, the teachers don't even call them students because that might be demeaning, so they call them friends. Hey, friends, we're getting in line, friends. What are you doing, friend? 
And JP gets it that that's dumb. He's eight, and he's like, Dad, we are not friends, all right? <laughs> they never come to our house and hang out, and I'm a kid. Just call me a kid. But anyway, <clears throat> so JP is cast as Joseph in the holiday extravaganza. And so I go, and the, the real show is at 730, but I go to the student, the, the show for the student body there, and we're in the cafetorium. And the whole thing is about all the different traditions that happen uh, during this time of year. And everybody's there. I mean, Santa Claus is there. The reindeer are there. Um, uh, Hanukkah folks are there, and they're spinning the dreidel. And the Kwanzaa people are there banging the drums and their African outfits. And then at one point in the extravaganza, um, they say, let's go to JP's church and see his play that he's in. And so out comes Joseph, as played by Joseph Perry Martin IV. And then there comes Mary, a lovely little second-grade girl. And she's holding baby Jesus. And their angels are there and the wise men and the shepherds. And everything's there. And they're singing the song about no room in the inn. And then when that part's over, they just go kind of get back into the, the chorus line there. And then the next thing, you know, Santa Claus and the reindeer are up. And then it's dreidel, dreidel. And then it's Kwanzaa drums. And everybody, you know, it's, it's equal access. And as I'm watching this, first of all, I was super stoked that my son was cast correctly in the, you know, correct genre there of what this is all about. But so the only problem, and I know everybody's just watching their kid. And, you know, nobody's ever seen their kid do anything lately, right? They only see it through the viewfinder. So that's kind of different. But, but I'm standing there watching this and thinking, but there's, there's one problem. Is that that little baby that second grade Mary's holding? See, the, the reason he doesn't fit in the holiday extravaganza is because he grows up and he makes this claim. He makes this unique claim that he's God. And that, that he's going to go to the cross. And that he's going to pay the price for our sin. And all those other things, sure, they're legitimate traditions. But Christ is unique because he didn't come just as a baby in a play to pay respect and honor to. Because he wasn't going to grow up to just be a teacher. Or just be a moral example. But to be a savior for all the people. To die on the cross. To shed his blood. To be the propitiation. Or the substitutionary atoning sacrifice. For your sin. And mine. And that it wasn't over there. But then he resurrected from the grave. To conquer sin. And death. Here's how C.S. Lewis says it. C.S. Lewis says. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. And so the danger in Jacksonville, Florida during this time is to just think Christmas is about a baby in a manger when it's not. It's celebrating the incarnation of a Savior who claimed to be God, died on a cross, and was resurrected from the grave. And anyone that wants to be forgiven of your sin and seen righteous in your relationship with God, you and God, be okay to know Him not as judge but as your heavenly Father, then Christ has made that way possible. 
that you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ and you will be saved. And so all throughout this Christmas season, whenever you see that manger, just know it's a precursor to the cross and to the empty tomb. You know, I've been looking through the words of a lot of the Christmas carols because our band came out with that Christmas EP. And I don't know about you, but I didn't really know any of the words of the second, third, and fourth verses. And like many of us, we just kind of know the words about Christmas time in the Christmas carols. But most of the carol writers got it right because typically the second, third, and fourth verses of the Christmas carols that we know are about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. That even the Christmas carols that we sing are not just about Jesus, baby in a manger, but Christ crucified and resurrected. And so the way we're going to end today is we're going to do a couple of things. One, just a second, the band's going to come and they're going to sing. But before that, I'm going to give you an opportunity to not just honor baby Jesus, but to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. To cast all of your sin upon him on the cross so that you can receive his righteousness, that your sins could be forgiven, and that you could be in right standing before God. And then as we close, we're just going to spend some time focusing in on the baby in a manger who became the Savior of us all. Would you please bow your head right where you are? If you're here this morning... And maybe you've honored the Christmas tradition, um, but you've never surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ. We just raise your hand where you are and say, Christ, I am ready to surrender to you. Father, I want my sins to be forgiven, not by what I have done, but by what you've done on the cross. I've been Lord of my life, and I'm ready for you to be Lord of my life. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you that salvation is in this place. God, we praise you that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God, we praise you for this time of year. But God, we also praise you that this is just the beginning. This is just the prologue to the story. And the, the ultimate event happened at your resurrection. And God, I thank you that you would love us enough to do something about it. That you would love us enough to send your only begotten son to endure the judgment that, that we deserved so that we could receive a righteousness that you earned and so that we could know you as heavenly Father. Lord, we pray against the distractions of this season. We pray that we would not be inoculated with the news of Jesus, but we would stand in awe that God became flesh, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, was resurrected on the third day, and that we could be adopted into your family. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I just want you all to stay seated. The band's going to sing through uh, O Little Town of Bethlehem and just use this as a time. In fact, you won't get a lot of time to just be able to sit and focus on who Christ is during this busy season. So would you focus on the same?